I don't know about you, but I can be pretty picky about the temperature of the food that I eat. <laughs> I'm one of those people who likes hot foods hot, and I like cold foods cold. And some foods really are only good one way or the other, but there are some foods that kind of work either way. Now, I happen to love a good steak. And when you take a steak off the grill and it's sizzling hot and you eat it, oh man, is that good. But then I take some leftover steak, I put it in the fridge, and the next day that cold steak makes a killer sandwich. It works both ways. Not all foods can do that. I happen to love clam chowder, and once I was in a restaurant and they served me a lukewarm bowl of chowder. It was awful. Yuck, I almost spit it out. It just didn't work. And when food is supposed to be hot or cold, lukewarm doesn't cut it. And what's true for food is true for many other areas of life. Sports teams don't want lukewarm fans. Companies don't want lukewarm employees. And Jesus doesn't want lukewarm followers. Unfortunately, he has some. Because at times every church will have some lukewarm Christians within it. On one memorable occasion, though, recorded for us in Scripture, Jesus encounters an entire church that is lukewarm. I have a hard time getting my head around that. Just think of it. Individually and as a group, there's an entire congregation, and they all have a lukewarm faith. And where do we find that church? We find it in the ancient city of Laodicea, which today would be in the nation of Turkey. The believers in that church are in great spiritual danger because they become indifferent about their faith. And that means their souls are in danger. And yet because they're lukewarm, they don't realize the danger they're in. And it's so important for us to understand how Jesus chooses to respond to that very dire situation. He writes them a love letter. He doesn't condemn them. He writes them a letter of love. Now, he's not gentle because it's a desperate situation and it requires some tough love. But Jesus doesn't just point out the problem. He shows them how to correct the problem. He urgently pleads with them to get their lives in order. We need to understand that when Jesus confronts his church, his goal is never to beat us up. His goal is to rescue us. That's what he wants to do for our spiritual ancestors in Laodicea. He's going to critique them and correct them in order to save them from themselves. And this letter is preserved for us in Scripture as a warning to every church in every generation to not make the same mistakes as the Laodiceans. And so let's see what we can learn from Jesus today. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, starting in verse 14. 
Again, this is Jesus dictating this letter to the Apostle John, who's going to write it down and then send it to the church. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Ooh, that's hard. But Jesus begins by describing himself as the amen, as the faithful and true witness, and as one who was there at the beginning of God's creation. And I want to, for just a minute, touch on the meaning of this word amen. It's a word that we commonly use, but I wonder if you know what it actually means. If you think you know what amen means, just shout out your answer. Let it be done or so be it. What do you think? Would you agree with that? You're right! (laughs) That's awesome. When I've asked that question before, here's the most common answer I get. People think it means, I agree. Like you go to some of these very enthusiastic, responsive churches, right? And the pastor's up there preaching his brains out and people in the congregation are going, amen, amen, as if they're saying, yeah, preacher, I agree. And then sometimes when we pray and we close our prayers with amen, we kind of treat it like it means the end. (laughs) I'm done praying, God, amen. But that's not what it means because as was pointed out, it means so be it or let it be true. And so when I hear God's truth and say amen, I'm doing more than agreeing with it, I'm embracing it, because it's true. And when I pray and say amen, I'm expressing my desire that God's purposes will be accomplished in my life in response to my prayer. Because God's word is true and his purposes are true and we embrace them when we say amen. And Jesus now takes that idea a step further because he doesn't just say amen, he is amen. In other words, God the Father speaks, then Jesus steps in as God the Father's personal amen. Jesus' amen is the guarantee that God's truth will come to pass. Wow. Now that's a rather significant claim for Jesus to make. And why is he entitled to claim that about himself? Because, as he reminds the Laodiceans, he's an eyewitness to everything about God. In fact, his eyewitness account goes back to the very beginning of creation. Where he didn't just watch, he helped to do the creating. Because Jesus is God. And that word translated beginning in our Bible passage is a really interesting and complex word in the original Greek text because it means beginning and it also means ruling. So Jesus did not just participate in the beginning of our world. He also shares in ruling our world. Jesus begins here with this very succinct statement of who he is. He's the creator. He's the ruler. He's the faithful witness of God's truth. He is God's amen. 
He's not someone we can afford to be lukewarm about. And yet here's this whole church in Laodicea, Christians who are lukewarm. And it's important to understand, as Jesus says, they're not, they're not cold toward the Lord. They haven't rejected Jesus. But their faith isn't hot either. They're living lives where there's no passion, there's no fire, there's no zeal. There's, there's no longing for more of Jesus in their life, more truth that informs and shapes their lives. They've just become lackadaisical about their faith. They're indifferent toward Jesus. And that happens when we place greater emphasis, greater value on other things. And if that happens, if other things assume a greater priority in our life than our relationship with Jesus, if we set God to the side, then we will become lukewarm. And it's really important to understand, Jesus says, you know, I would prefer to deal with people who actually have a meaningful spiritual temperature. The best situation, of course, is to be spiritually hot. Because then we're living by faith, we're pursuing God passionately. And our interaction with Jesus is part of our ongoing daily experience. If we're spiritually cold then we're not right with God. But it's actually much easier to recognize our need for God. Jesus rescues spiritually cold people all the time because at some point they recognize just how cold they are. It's been my experience that when people are suffering from spiritual frostbite, they're much more likely at some point to repent and get right with God so they can warm up. But if we're lukewarm, you see, then we're indifferent. And then we are in real deep trouble. Because here's what I've seen happen. If people are lukewarm and indifferent, they go through the motions and they give themselves the illusion of spirituality. If we're lukewarm, we do the outward right things. Oh, we go to church and we pray and we read the Bible. And we fool ourselves. And we don't realize we're just going through the motions. We pray and say amen at the end of a prayer, but we don't get up from that prayer and then go through our day looking to see what God might do in response to that prayer. We read the Bible, but we don't let the truth permeate our minds and our hearts. We don't look to see what God's doing during the day and seeing how, how the truth that we've encountered might actually shape the way we live. Or we claim to believe, but our actions indicate we just don't take God seriously. He's not the center of our life. He's an accessory to our life. And so we don't take him seriously. Not as seriously, perhaps, as our paycheck or our house or our car or our hobbies or our health or our fitness. When we're lukewarm, when we're indifferent about faith, all that other stuff is what's really important. And lukewarm believers 
are indifferent believers who don't realize just how far they are from God. And that's why this is such dangerous spiritual territory. A former pastor of mine once was preaching on this passage and he made an interesting comment about a lukewarm church and I've never forgotten it. He said, I think God actually could remove the Holy Spirit from a church like that and no one even would notice. I think that's probably true. A lukewarm congregation wouldn't notice because they're not paying attention to God. And up to this point, that's certainly true of the Laodiceans. They haven't been paying attention. (laughs) But I'll bet they will when they get this letter. (laughs) Being called lukewarm by the Savior of the world would hit anyone hard. But it would hit this church especially hard. And that's because the ancient world had a very common saying about temperature. Here's what they used to say in the first century. Hot water heals, cold water refreshes, but lukewarm water is useless. If that's a common phrase in your culture, and Jesus writes to you and says, you're lukewarm, Oh, ouch. The Laodiceans would understand that Jesus Christ is saying to them that their practice of Christianity is useless. It's also really important not just to understand that they are lukewarm, but how did they get there? What has caused this indifference? Jesus spells that out in the next part of the letter, so let's continue on. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Boy, is that an indictment. Wow. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, there are many things which could cause a church to be distracted from God, to to isolate themselves from God, and to become indifferent. So I don't think what's said here is necessarily a universal reason, but it's the reason for the Laodiceans, they're distracted by materialism. Money and possessions take center stage in their lives, not Jesus. And it's no surprise that they've adopted that that viewpoint and embraced those values because at the time Jesus dictates this letter, Laodicea is a very wealthy city. They have a diverse economy based on finance, textile manufacturing, and healthcare products. It's a prosperous city, a prosperous consumer culture where people live well. And by the way, Over the last few weeks, as we've worked our way through several of Jesus' letters, have you noticed an interesting trend? In almost every case, when Jesus critiques one of his churches, it's because they've embraced too much of their culture. In one way or another, for many of these ancient churches, 
the culture of their society has had a greater influence on their lives than the truth of God. So we need to be aware that that's a common challenge for us as believers. And we need to be very discerning about how and where we engage with our culture and how and where we draw lines so that we can stay firm in our faith. And so here in Laodicea, we have an entire church that's embraced overwhelmingly a consumer culture. And so the citizens of Laodicea have nice homes and nice clothes. They eat good food and have comfortable lives. And the Christians aren't any different from anyone else. And I I don't know what their church is like, but I can kind of assume. I'll bet this congregation has a beautiful building. They might have great offerings. I'll, I'll bet the church treasurer can look with pride on the congregational finances. Because they're all doing well. But individual wealth and congregational wealth is not automatically a sign of spiritual health. And these believers in particular have been lured by the cultural idols of money and possessions and security and comfort to the point where they see themselves as fully self-sufficient. Jesus even quotes them. They say, I need nothing. Wow. That's an incredible statement. It's a statement of smug self-satisfaction. It's a statement of prideful self-righteousness. I have a friend who pastors here in the Pacific Northwest, another community. It's a community with many upper-income people. And he told me once, oh, I encounter this attitude all the time in the community. He's learned that wealth is a great mask that some people hide behind. And because they are successful, they convince themselves that their lives are fully in order. And it's a lie. It's a lie because we all have needs. None of us are sufficient on our own. We all need God and we all need others. That's the way we've been made. And so if we tell ourselves, oh, I have no needs, then our faith isn't in Jesus. It's probably in our stuff. I need to make another aside here. It's easy for us, I think most of us would describe ourselves as more or less middle class, and it's easy to think of other people as the rich. But we need to realize that based on historical standards and based on the reality of modern life in our world, most of us are, in fact, rich. We are well off. You and I have access to conveniences and creature comforts that earlier generations only could dream of. And most Americans, even those on the lower end of the income scale, experience a quality of life that many other people in our world envy. We're doing well. And we need to not take it for granted. At the same time, though, we need to be careful to not villainize people who have money and people who have possessions 
including ourselves. Money and possessions aren't the problem. It's what we do with them that matters. One of the one of the worst misquotes in the Bible is the one that says, you know, money is the root of all evil. No, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Having money, having stuff isn't the problem. The question is, what are we doing with it? How do we value it? Who and what do we ultimately trust? That's the key point. And so the biggest challenge for the Laodicean church is not that they're doing well. The biggest challenge is that they are trusting their wealth and their community's commerce far more than they trust in God, and that's why they're in deep trouble. And that's why Jesus has to be so blunt with them. He wants them to realize a painful truth. These well-off, self-satisfied, smug, comfortable Christians are poor in everything that matters most. They're materially rich and spiritually impoverished. And Jesus loves them. Oh, He loves them. He's deeply concerned for them. And that's why He urges them to shift their priorities. And He does so with a pointed comment that stabs right into the very heart of the Laodicean economy. So he says, you don't need more earthly gold like you accumulate through your work in the marketplace. You need the refined gold that I provide through salvation and the truth of the Scriptures. You don't need more fancy clothes like the ones you buy in the local shops. You need to wear the white garments that symbolize the fact that you now have a pure heart before God. You don't need more eye salve like the one that your city is famous for. You need a spiritual eye salve so you can see God clearly. And so if the Laodiceans want to have a spiritual future, they must change. And if they don't change, well, Jesus said earlier, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And whenever I read that phrase, I think of the time I spit out that lukewarm clam chowder. (laughs) Why do we spit stuff out? Because it's unacceptable. Lukewarm, indifferent believers are unacceptable to Jesus. Not because he rejects them, but because they have rejected him. They've allowed their hearts to be stolen. He wants them to know if they continue down that path, they will not be part of God's family any longer. Oh, it's a very severe warning. Yet it's not a statement of condemnation because Jesus always is willing to relent when people repent. And because he loves these people, he makes an urgent plea for them to do just that. He wants them to experience the joy of the second chance that that God offers whenever people decide to turn away from the things that hamstring them and to turn toward Jesus and get right with God. Let's look at the concluding part of this letter. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. What a great reminder that love isn't always touchy-feely. 
Sometimes love has to be firm. Sometimes love has to be tough. Parents know that. (laughs) Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm sure all of us at times have been involved in rebuking someone or disciplining someone and there's times when we might do it out of anger or out of hate, perhaps even out of pride. Hopefully we do it out of love. And we need to understand that with Jesus, a rebuke from him is always an expression of love because he knows what's best for his followers. And so he invites these Christians in Laodicea to repent of their skewed values and their indifferent faith. He invites them to make a resolution, we will change. And and when they do, oh, he's just waiting for them to invite him in. He wants to dine with them, he says. Which in the ancient Middle East is almost the ultimate expression of friendship and hospitality. In our society, I think perhaps our, our ideal picture of hospitality probably would be the Thanksgiving dinner. We've kind of idealized that. But picture a Thanksgiving table with family and friends gathered around. There's good food, good conversation, and the comfort and satisfaction of loving relationships. That's the idea here. That's the kind of connection that Jesus wants to have with all of his followers. He's not looking for us to engage in a religious performance. He just wants to be with us. And so this is his plea to every person in Laodicea, oh, would you just invite me in? Give me a seat at your table. Put me in the midst of all that's going on. And then you can experience the joy of dining with the Savior of the world. By the way, another little aside here. Most of the time when I hear someone quote verse 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's so often used in the context of evangelism. We like to use that verse to encourage unbelievers to open their heart to Jesus. And that's certainly a good thing, but that's not the context here. (laughs) Jesus is not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to a church. He's writing to his own people who have pushed him aside. He's standing outside their lives. He's standing outside their church, eager to get in, and they don't even know it. But they know it now. So they have a choice. They can answer Jesus' knock, or they can ignore him. They can invite him in through repentance, or they can turn him away. Jesus clearly wants them to make the right choice, so he does more than just offer an urgent plea. He also offers an incredible eternal promise promise that if the Laodiceans repent and rekindle the flame of their faith, they will be victorious. They'll be victorious over sin. They'll be living lives of faith. And if they honor Jesus that way in this life, then Jesus will honor them in the next life. 
They'll be close to him. They'll be by his side forever. What an incredible promise from God. And this promise that Jesus makes here to the Laodiceans, it lines up with other promises that we've seen in Jesus' other letters. Here's a few of them. Here's some of the promises that we've seen. If believers hold firmly to Jesus, then we inherit the kingdom of God. If we're willing to suffer like Jesus, then we will reign with Jesus. If we're victorious like Jesus, then we will rule with Jesus. In all of these ways, Jesus is saying that he wants us close to him, not just in this life, but forever. Oh, he wants to sit at the table and dine with us. Well, that's the invitation that Jesus has extended to the Laodiceans, this church full of lukewarm, indifferent people. And it raises a great question. What did they do with Jesus' words? Did they take offense at his critique and turn away from him? Or did they accept his loving rebuke and turn back to him with all of their hearts? We don't always know the trajectory of ancient churches, but we do know with Laodicea. Church history tells us that this congregation took Jesus seriously. They responded to his tough love. They repented and they raised their spiritual temperature. They fanned their faith into flame and this congregation thrived for at least another 300 years. The recipients of this letter were victorious which means they are now with Jesus. And we can be as well because this same promise is offered to us. And this promise that Jesus offers here, it will come true in your life and in mine if we refuse to go through the motions of an indifferent, lukewarm Christianity. This promise will be ours if our faith burns hot for Jesus. And just to be clear, An on-fire faith is not an obnoxious faith. (laughs) We've all met people like that. There was a time in my life when I was that person. To be spiritually hot doesn't mean we run around and get in people's faces and confront them, make aggressive spiritual demands. To be spiritually hot simply means that we trust Jesus more than the things of this world. It means we trust Jesus and follow him even when life is hard and circumstances don't make sense. It means we strive to listen to the small, still voice of the Holy Spirit and rely on him to guide us to do the right things. When we are spiritually hot, Jesus is at the center of our lives and everything else is an accessory. It's the exact opposite of a lukewarm church where Jesus is the accessory. No, when we're hot, Jesus is at the center and everything else is an accessory. One Bible commentator was writing about this ancient 
church in Laodicea, and he compared it to modern-day America, and he wrote something interesting. He said, the one attitude which the risen Jesus unsparingly condemns is indifference, because it is the hardest thing to combat. The problem of our modern world is that Christianity has ceased to be relevant, so people regard believers with indifference. Listen to this next sentence. This can be changed only if Christians demonstrate that their faith has the power to make life strong and the grace to make life beautiful. Ooh, I love that. Here's the key point. But an indifferent church will never change an indifferent world. When we're indifferent, we're not changed. And when we're indifferent, we can't be God's faithful representatives to our very broken world. So Jesus' love letter to Laodicea is a red alert to every congregation. Don't become complacent. Don't become indifferent. Don't become lukewarm. And you know what I love? We aren't. And I don't believe we ever will be. Thurston Christian Church has survived and thrived for more than 130 years. And that's because through all kinds of seasons, this congregation has refused to become indifferent. And we who are here today, oh, we have received an incredible legacy of faith that's been passed on to us. So let's never relent. Let's keep pressing on each and every day in the life of faith. And let's do this together, helping each other maintain a nice, hot, inviting spiritual temperature. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's just it's incredible sometimes to realize just how much you love us and how much you want to watch out for us and protect us and and it's amazing to realize how much you have to put up with from us. Oh my goodness, we're thankful for this love letter from Jesus because he was willing to be tough, but not for the purpose of condemnation, for the purpose of renewal. Help us to take these words seriously as the Laodiceans did so many years ago. Help us to learn from their mistakes. So we never allow ourselves to be lured into a lukewarm faith. May we always, Father, encourage each other, support each other, stand with each other, so that together we maintain a healthy spiritual temperature. Oh, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, continue to fan our faith into flame so that in any and all circumstances, we choose to trust Jesus, to follow him wherever he leads, and so that the world around us will see that we have a faith that gives us the power to make life strong and the grace to make life beautiful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.